I haven't been so well since my resurrection <laughs> for humor, but here it is. I've been listening to my favorite podcast, Mouse and Weens. <laughs> well, get the truth. Well, I am. Uh, Hello, welcome to Mouse and Weeds. Hello, we are here together in San Diego. I'm Joelle. I'm Mouse. I'm the mom one. I'm Julianne. I'm the single one up in LA, and we are here to bring you a very important, wonderful, amazing human being and great actor and producer and writer and musician. W. w Earl Brown! Woo! He goes by Earl, but you might know him as Warren from Something About Mary. And as Dan Doherty and Deadwood. He was also in Scream. Yes. With me. That's right. With Julianne. That's <laughs> I was they, a, a mere background person. That is where they met. And he was Kenny, the, the yeah. news. He got killed. The news cameraman. Spoiler alert from 1990. Oh, <laughs> I didn't mean to. I'm very sorry about that. Anyway, he's an amazing actor. He's a good, he's got a good heart and a good soul. We just had a great interview with him. We enjoyed it so much. And we appreciate him being with us. And we want you to hear that right away. That's right. He's got tons of stories. We're probably going to cut this into uh, two episodes for you because there are so many great stories. I don't want to cut anything out. They're so good. It was so much fun. It's great. So sit back and relax and enjoy this wonderful interview with W. Earl Brown. Woohoo! Hi, Lake. There you are. There, there you are. are. How well, you doing? I'm doing all right. Oh, it's so good to see you. Hanging in there, huh? It's been uh, what? Four years. It's been a little long, I know. What have you been up to? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's introduce us. Or do you want to do any little pre-chat or what's that photo? I know. Well, oh, that's a drawing of that's Lemmy Kilmister. Oh. And the painting of Lemmy. Yeah. And I, I, I Motorhead, the band Motorhead. Uh, Lemmy was a friend of mine. He was a, a musician who kind of lived life on his own terms, and he died a couple of years ago. I rem- wasn't he a regular at the Rainbow Room? Oh, or- all the time, sitting at uh, sitting at the video poker machine at the end of the end of the bar. Yeah, I've heard so many stories about he was such a instrumental figure in so many. What was he to you? Well, I was a Motorhead kid, a fan as a kid. Well, I was I was like twenty. When I when I first heard the band, and then I I really got into them. They were always an underground heavy metal slash punk band. They kind of appealed to both both crowds. And then I met Lem in 2000. A friend of mine he had hired to play a gig with him. He was doing a a, a cable TV show, and um, so he he had this aura about himself. Uh, he was an incredibly bright man. Um, read read voraciously read history um collected nazi memorabilia which is a story in and of itself as i got to know him i asked i said what's the world what's all the fucking nazi stuff and he said well i'm not a nazi i've never been a fucking nazi i know what the rumors are but my earliest memories in london as a small child were that those were the motherfuckers who were trying to kill me well they're all dead, and I own their shit. I win. <laughs> but anyway, the day, the day that I met him, 
um, <clears throat> I was invited to come down to their rehearsals and it was a Sunday morning. So I get there at like 10.30 or so and Lim is shirtless in his jeans, wearing his white leather cowboy boots, just exactly like you imagine Lim being. And Zach goes, oh, uh, Lemmy, this is my buddy Earl. Hey, uh, nice meeting you, nice meeting you. Earl, do you want a drink? Oh, man, it's Sunday morning. I, uh, but it's Lemmy, sure. So he had a Maker's Mark. He had two, two cases. He only had one with him at a time. One was for a Maker's Mark bottle, and one was for a Jack Daniels bottle. And it was a Halliburton case. It cut out for a bottle and two glasses. So he pours me a Jack Daniels. We had a few. So we start, we start singing songs, and we had a guitar pull, and I knew he loved the Beatles. He absolutely, he used to follow the Beatles, um, and he was Jimi Hendrix's roadie. When they started the Jimi Hendrix experience, Lemmy was their original roadie in London. So I knew he was a Beatles freak, so we sing like a dozen Beatles songs, and Lem turns to me and goes, oh, do you like ABBA? Well, I think he's pulling my chain, the heavy metal god liking ABBA. And I said, no. <laughs> He said, well, you missed out on the greatest sense of pop melody outside of Lennon and McCartney. Zach, you know any, you know any Abba? Zach starts Fernando. So Lem starts singing Fernando. I'm drunk. It's Sunday morning. My thought was, you know, I should be in church. <laughs> I thought, I am. Um, the Church of Lenny. Why not? That was Lem, yeah. Well. He was a profound guy. I've seen videos of him spewing lots of knowledge. He was he was interesting. Yeah. Well, he turns to me that more. This is this is the the. Um, well, he turns to me because uh, he's taught, his son Paul had just moved over from London, and and Paul had had this he uh, this on and off relationship with his father growing up because Lim was you know gone all the time. Lim was never married, including Paul's mother. And uh, so he would see him, you know, every six months or so, dad would show up and they would go do something. And, um, and Lemmy had lost his dad in World War II. So Lem never had a father. So that was all of his, the Nazis are the fuckers that killed his dad or caused his dad to. Um, so anyway, Paul was there and they're talking about this, that, and the other in London. And he brings up some guy, you know, Liam. Oh, Liam hates me. He goes, no, dad, I don't think he hates you. He does, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit odd, you know, since he had the accident. He goes, oh, he hated me before he had a steel plate in his head, and he hates me after he's got a steel plate. <laughs> he turns to me and he goes, I screwed his butt. He never got over it. Well, being an American, I thought, well, my God, that's an unusual thing. One of your friend's pets. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I went, oh, oh. His girlfriend, you, his girlfriend. <laughs> uh, beautiful girl, beautiful girl. She had nipples. Have you ever had a woman with inverted nipples? I went, uh, um, no, <laughs> no. He said, well, it's a tasty treat if you're willing to put in the work. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh that, my was, that was Lemmy. That yeah. was Lemmy. See, he could write a little uh, essay on um, nursing for new mothers that suffer from that yeah. problem. He, yeah. He has some tips. That's good. <laughs> oh, my God. But now, I've never met anybody like him that was that bright. And just, he lit, He was a drug addict. You know, he lived on speed and whiskey. And, um, you know, uh, and, and I, anyway, he, he was a friend of mine. He was a unique individual. And I was gifted that drawing by an artist who found out that I was a fan. So oh, that's awesome. That's, 
Well, by the way, I'm Joelle. I'm Mouse. And that's <laughs> Julianne. You remember her. That's Weens. Yeah. <laughs> We're so glad and honored to have Thank you here you. today. Thank you for joining us. We're very happy to see you. And we feel like we've seen a lot of you. We've done some deep dives yeah. into your background, your research. And I was just going to ask you what you've been up to during all this time as a busy actor. What? what? Yeah, quarantine. Um, what happened? <laughs> uh, well, the hiatus just pulled a plug out of everything, you know. Um, there, I, I have done about a month, six weeks ago, the wheels started to turn again. I did a little independent film with um, Elijah Wood that we shot here in Los Angeles. And so that's that's done. And then um, I start back on a thing. I, I am not allowed to talk about it because of my NDA, but um, um, I start work on a thing back here in, in December that takes me through into next spring that I'm awfully excited about. And I wish I could share it, but the NDA is seven pages long, so I can't oh talk about that. Oh my gosh, so it sounds yet. like a big deal. <laughs> it is. Do you have a heavy shooting schedule and like it started up already or just coming? No, well, it's, uh, let me just, it's a very popular show that's first season is an enormous hit. And the second season is, is coming up soon. Um, and I did some work on that. And then um, uh, I don't even know what the, the schedule is. It's a heavy effects makeup stuff. So they booked me for three months. So nice. I do have that coming up. Um, and I wish I want to talk about it, but I can't. That's, that's okay. okay. Oh my gosh, that's exciting though. Good for you. Yay. That's great. And Elijah Wood's awesome. How was it working with him? I managed, he was, um, I had gone on the road shooting video for Gogo Burdello and he was dating one of the the singer dancers with Gogo Burdello, the, do you know that music band? Yeah. 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 They're, and, uh, and he would stay up all night. He was really into music. And I'm sure you guys connected on that, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Did that you? and horror movies. Yeah, we talked a lot about it. That's awesome. Yeah. How fun. What is the name of that project? Can you talk about that one that's coming out? Um, you know what? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> don't talk, talk about, about it. it. Don't talk about I it. I signed an NDA on it. That's what's ridiculous now is is uh, it's not on the internet like the information about this film i've done with him so i'm hesitant to talk too much about it because yeah. it hasn't been officially announced yeah um, don't, and don't now with it. social media being what it is you know and and the, the rabid fans you know everyone is so i don't get a script that doesn't have my name embossed on it you it's know scary. even through email um because they want to find the leaks if somebody leaks the material out so I'm not sure how much of that that I can talk about. Okay. I just say I've done it with him. That's all you so. need to say. We won't go in. I know. It's scary. Yeah. yeah. All right. Then we'll talk about stuff that is already out. Okay. You and I met on <laughs> Scream. Yay, Scream. And how is that? Yes. That was one of your first big breakout movies. Did you, right? Uh, that was the first, that was the first movie that I had billing on. That was a big, huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. That was Did you 96. ever expect that? Hell no. I mean, I, I had read the script. I had done two movies with Wes. Wes was Wes Craven. He was the first like Hollywood name that took me under wing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was just a, a, a twist of fate. I, I came out here from, I'd kind of hit the glass ceiling in Chicago. And I was with an agency then that were in Chicago and here. It was sisters that ran two offices. 
And every year they would send out five or six people that were doing well in Chicago. So I came out here in the fall, or I'm sorry, February of 1993. And I, um, I got a TV pilot right off the bat. So I go to New Orleans to shoot it. And then I came back and this pilot didn't get picked up, but I got back and I got a TV movie and I called my wife and I said, we got to move out here because this is low hanging fruit. So we pulled up stakes from Chicago and moved here that summer. And then it was nothing, nothing, seven months of nothing. Scary. And which was the longest I had gone without working since I'd gotten out of school that, you know, not getting some kind of a paycheck. Um, so uh, the casting director who did that pilot was doing, um, I got a call, they said, Wes Craven, Gary Zuckerbrod is casting this new Wes Craven film and he'd like to bring you in. Great, Wes Craven. Because I love Nightmare on Elm Street, it's one of my all-time favorite films. Still is one of my all-time favorites. And um, so I, I, I hated the sequels. I didn't know that Wes did not have anything to do outside of Dream Warriors, which is actually all right. Um, but he, he had no voice whatsoever, no say-so in what became a Freddy Krueger. So anyway, they said, well, it's, it's a new Wes Craven film. They're not releasing a script because they're real secretive about this, but you can go and read the script at the office. So I thought, well, I'll just go in an hour early and I'll read the script before the audition. So I get there and it says Nightmare 7 on the door. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be in a damn night. I don't want to be in one of those. Yeah. And then I start reading the script and it was the first like meta horror film. It was incredibly smart. Um, you know, it was, I don't know if you ever saw it, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah. The idea was it was the 10th anniversary of everyone who had worked on the film wanting to have dreams of Freddy. People had worked on the film were starting to suffer and die. So Wes played himself in the movie. So it was a movie about itself. Um, and it was quite clever. Anyway, I got cast in it. And there's one scene, there's a, a decent scene, um, we shot this, this abandoned hospital here in Los Angeles and I was wrapped at about three or four in the morning and I'm in, I'm in the little, the honey wagon, you know, the small dressing rooms, the trailers that I have a honey wagon. So I'm in there changing to go home and there's a knock on my door. I opened it's Wes. And he just said, I, I have to, I got to thank you. I, um, Gary really pushed for me to hire you. And, uh, he, he has very, uh, holds you in high regard. I'm very glad we, we're going to do something else together down the road. So a year passes. So, and a vampire in Brooklyn was happening and I was my agent at the time. They, they couldn't get me in the door and I kept pushing. I said, look, he told me, he told me, he told me. So finally at the last minute, it was a one line part, like literally one line. So I, I'm like, I'll do it because it's Wes Craven. So I, I got there and it was at Paramount in the Roddenberry building in a conference room. And I remember I opened the door, he's sitting, he and Marianne is producer and Lisa Harrison is assistant are sitting at the other end of the room. And as I'm closing the door behind me, I hear him say to Marianne, oh my God, why didn't we have him here earlier? So nice. I get there and he, and he goes, or, or, he goes, I'm embarrassed that you're even brought in on something like this. I, well, what happened is an actor got sick, unfortunately, that had been hired. So then I got bumped up into that role that the other actor was supposed to play. Um, and it's still, you know, the movie was me. And he, when we finished, Wes gave me his number, his home number. Wow. Uh, he said, stay in touch with me. The next film, we're going to find something. And that film was screened. Uh, well, it was called Scary Movie, you know, when we first started. Um, 
I still have the script here somewhere. Um, yeah, I have that original script that I had on set. That is but so yeah, cool. so so that was how that one came about. And then we met. We met because Jamie Kennedy had a crush on you. <laughs> <laughs> I we were in the video store, yeah. and I drove down there because I wasn't working that day. So I drove down to have lunch on the set. Jamie goes, hey, have you seen that girl that she's working in the background? Have you seen? I said, who? That what over there? Her, that one. It was you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and the crew came out. We at a, we because we always had a party every night, and y'all yeah. showed up at the hotel. Do you remember that? I don't. When I called him and I went, you need to come down here to the party, dude. I'm watching the ball game. I said, you need to come down here to the party. I'm in. I don't want to. I'm, I said, you really want to come down here to the. So basically, you pimped her out. You are. Uh, you deserve some pimp fees. And <laughs> he just had a crush on her. So you, you know. know what I remember too is he sent you over to go say, hey, uh, you walked over to me, mm -hmm. and I think it was in the video oh, store, yeah. and you said, yeah. hey, you, my friend over there, uh, he kind of likes you, and he kind of wants yeah. to get your phone number. And I was like, and I was all saucy back then, and I said, well, you could tell him to come over and ask me himself. And then I guess he did yes, later. I, 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 yeah, I had <laughs> forgotten that. It's like elementary school, wasn't it? One step away from Check yes or no. Uh, yeah. oh my and then it came over later and I happened to be in the dirty video section and I was looking at some long dongs and he came up and he was like, ooh, that's a good one. And I was like, ah. <laughs> the rest is history. Uh, but Well, do tell the history. Did anything happen or you guys just stayed friends? Oh, we don't know. That'll be the, uh, the B-side album. We did end up hanging out a few times, Jamie and I. <laughs> that's a story for another time, though. Scream was my first experience of um, what was the I mean, because it became huge, you know, and we, we had the I had done a couple of movies in in Chicago. So I'd kind of got the thing, you know, movies are like summer camp. Everybody goes away and you, you meet this group of interesting strangers and you guys have a shared experience for, you know, a couple of months and you friendships form and romances form and, and then everybody goes home and they go back to the next project. Yeah. So I, I, I realized even in Chicago, cause people that I was like close with from, I'd call it like, Hey Bruce, Hey man, it's her. Oh, Hey, you know, so I'd already gotten used to that part of it. Um, but with scream, when we had the premiere here, uh, cause they'd already tested it. They knew they had an enormous hit on their hands. And I'm excited about going to the premiere party because I'm like, I'm going to get to hang out with my buddies, you know, just like we did because we hung out every single night on the on shooting that movie, you know, and um, and all of our hangout places burned down in the fire. The round barn that was up on the hill, oh, yeah. uh, the hotel that we all lived, stayed at um, in Santa Rosa a couple of years yeah. ago. Anyway, going to that screen premiere, it was the penultimate Hollywood see and be seen crowd like everybody you know like there's all the heat yeah. and I couldn't even get to to say hello to to David or Courtney or because they were surrounded by and that was when th that was a real disappointment uh for me in that I realized what you know what Hollywood the red carpets are what the premiere what that scene is it's about publicity it's not about celebrating and hanging out with your buddies um and then you know things catapulted for so many people involved with that film, including Jamie. Um, and then, you know, and he was younger than me. 
And like he came over to my house and I think he was weird. I'm still the house I live in now. I just bought it back then. And he was kind of weirded out by the fact that I had a quasi normal life. You know? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I haven't seen him in, in a long, long time. That's weird. I think some people, that's why I love you so much. I've always felt such a good vibe from you that you've always had this nice grounding spirit to you. And there's very few people mm. in Hollywood that have that right. who are just good people. And yeah, I found, well, I ran thanks. into a few people because I worked on Nash Bridges and Matthew Lillard came and was on a no. episode of that. And I talked to him and, you know, we, you never want to talk bad about anybody, but definitely the you know, egos blew up, I think, from that film. And then I think people were humbled later, you know, by like, that was a huge hit. And then, and then it was hard. It's always hard to get work, I would imagine, depending on, I mean, did you ever have periods of just where something was huge and then it was a couple years of not being able to get roles after? Um, It's never gone that long. Yeah. Um, the way I, re- I mean, two years after Scream, with the success of Scream, because it was the, uh, the first movie that I had billing on. Now, that wasn't negotiated. That's the first and only time I've ever had front of movie, you know, my name that Wes put up. Of course, the, the opening credits are at the end of that movie. Yeah. But I didn't naively didn't even know that that matters as far as your career, where your billing is and all that shit. Um, so that was the first movie I had billing on. Um, and then two years later, uh, something about Mary hit. Oh and that's gosh. the one where I'm like, all right, baby, here we go. House is paid for. Here we go. I love it. And nothing, nothing, nothing. And it was, that was a, a, a sobering experience. And I was ignored or cut out of all the celebratory award seasons and everything. I wasn't invited to anything. What? Um, and yeah. And that really bothered me because yeah. it's not like I had a great experience making that movie. And I was frozen out of the success of that movie. And then, but I still thought, well, there, there'll be a fucking sequel because, you know, this movie made $200 million, made a billion dollars in the year with all the ancillary stuff. But I'm still thinking, all right, well, at least there's the sequel and, and I'll, I'll get some payday on the sequel. No sequel. It's so weird. So, yeah. So the, I mean, when, when Ben made, Ben Stiller made um, Tropic Thunder, there's that whole speech that Robert Downey Jr. has to him about Happy Jack, you know, never go full retard. Yeah. Never go. The, you always got to know. The audience has got to. And, I, I, you know, I emailed Ben and I went, well, that explains my career. Oh. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. That, but but that two things with that. I think everybody actually bought the character. They believed it. And I knew instinctively that was the only way to to make it funny was to play it honestly. Um, because if you goofed it up or made a joke of the character, A, it's not going to be funny. B, the audience is going to hate you. Um, and I don't flippantly use that R word that I just used. Yeah. Because Warren himself, the real Warren, Warren Tajian plays Freddy in the movie. And he, at that point, when we shot the film, it was written for him to play Warren but they were afraid that it was a little too much for, for, for him to pull off. So they created Freddie for him. Um, and um, he was the president of the national national association of retarded citizens is the name of the group. And Warren, he was the past president of the group at that point. Um, but the, 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 the blessings of that, 
or twofold. One personally, it was a few years after the movie, but I was out at, at the the Roxy here, and this girl come up to me in the crowd, or hey, are you? And she told me the story of that movie. She said that she, her brother has Down syndrome, and she said my mom was wanting to see it. And she said I had the VH, I had the tape, and and I and she goes, I wasn't sure how my mom and how they would take it. And she, but she was adamant. So she said, I take the tape over there. I'm watching it at my mom's house. And she goes, Warren came on the screen. He said, my brother didn't say anything. He stood up and he walked to the TV and he goes, he's special. He's like me. Aww. He's like me. Yeah. And said, he went and sat down. And he goes, then we laughed our ass off for an hour and a half. <laughs> so that hit me of, of like, that rep, we talk about representation. Everybody deserves to see their experience and their life reflected back to them. Yeah. You know, they deserve to have to, to bring their life experience to a story. So I'm greatly honored by the fact that that family, you know, had that hour and a half of pure laughter um, and, and that her brother got that connection. Yeah. And then career wise with that, this was, um, um, after Deadwood had happened, Deadwood was the one that knocked me for a loop because that show was, I, I invested my heart and soul in that. Yeah. And I worked on the writing staff. So I was working on it constantly. Yeah. Um, sitting here at this desk. Um, so um, when it got canceled, I said, that show didn't end. That show stopped. And there's a big difference. Oh, that was and so threw, infuriating. It, yeah. It threw me into a funk, yeah. a big one. And I was, I had not worked in a while. and the money was low and my wife um because she when we had our, our daughter Anna right after something about Mary she stopped working full-time so to be a full-time mom which we were all worked out perfectly for us but I'm bitching and griping about something because somebody I used to audition for was getting paid five million dollars to do a film and, and and I'm getting close to broke and Carrie just out of the blue she goes what are you proudest of I said, what? She goes, career-wise, what are you proudest of having been a part of? What? Well, Deadwood? She goes, yeah, when was that? I went, 2002 was the pilot, series 04. She goes, yeah, if things had catapulted for you because of something about Mary, you'd be the fat, goofy guy in broad comedies. They yeah. never would have cast you in that part, and you yep. never would have taken a supporting part. That's a good woman. So, she was right. <laughs> That's a good That's woman. Right. I like that. Can I ask a quick question? Well, yeah, me too. I your wife back just to... came up too. I love the fact that you guys are high school sweethearts. Is that right? Yeah. And you've we been are. together since forever, right? You've been... Our first date was in October of 1982. I love that. Uh, and well, she was still in high school. I was in college. Um, <laughs> I knew her before, but we were... Well, it was a group of her friends... We're going to, she said, oh, some friends are going to the movies. Why don't you come and meet us at the movies? And I said, why? Well, she's really cute. And I said, well, look, well, what movie? She said, Halloween 3. And I'd already seen it. And I hated that movie. Hated that movie. <laughs> but she was really cute. So <laughs> I went to see Halloween 3 a second time. Uh, so, yeah, we started dating right after that. And then we broke up when I moved to Chicago for a year, about a year and a half. And got back together and been together ever since but the 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 great thing for her that's why i um my friend clark middleton who just passed away a couple of weeks ago 
Clark, he said, my daddy taught me, you put, you, you give the world your best, the best will come back to you. And um, my wife, her dream as a kid, that desk, well, you can't see it, but there's a roll top desk sitting over there that was her grandfather's, an antique roll top. And she used to sit at it and play office. Now we come from blue collar family from rural Kentucky, both of us. And she said her dream was to, to work at some big company someday. Now how the fuck she thought she was going to do that living in Murray, Kentucky, I don't know, but that was her <laughs> childhood dream. So she, when we had our daughter, she wanted to be a mom. So her dreams were set aside. And during Anna's second year of college, um, Carrie had volunteered for everything. She volunteered for the, she was the chairman of the Arts for All Council, which was funded arts education funding here in Burbank. And then she was a choir mom. Competitive show choir is a big deal at Burroughs High. They shot the Glee pilot, was actually shot at their high school. And my daughter was part of that. And Carrie was a choir mom. So through her volunteer, she got to know one of the other volunteer moms worked at Disney. Anyway, long story short, in his second year of school, Carrie got a call uh, from the HR at Disney. He said, we'd like to speak to you about an opportunity. So uh, she got hired by Disney. She is, she is an exec at Disney. Um, yeah, she's been awesome. there two years now. So her dream came to her. You know, she put other people first. She put her daughter first and then volunteering and giving of herself to the community. And, and she is one of these people that she gets a job done to the best and she's quite bright. So anyway, yeah, that, that was another dream deferred that circled back around. Aww, so I the world that. gave its best back to her. That's so. great. What a good it's nice you see that too. Yeah, this is kind of my life, although I'm married to a lawyer that sits at a desk, so it's a little bit different than an actor, a whirlwind actor going on locations and shoots. Did she hold up pretty well? Did she come with you with your daughter? or When, when Anna was small, we wouldn't go more than two weeks. That was our given. Either you come and visit or I come home. Luckily for me, Deadwood happened when Anna was, was three years old or four, right when she turned four when I did the pilot. And it was here in Los Angeles. So that took me from 02 to 06. So I was here. <clears throat> I went away a couple of times and did films. Mm -hmm. um, but it's rare. It's only been since Anna was in high school that I've had relocation jobs. Wow. Like I spent five months in Austin, Texas in 2014. I spent five months in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2016. Um, and then last year I was in Wilmington for five months. Um, so that, but again, that's only been since Anna is born. Now, when I was in Austin, they would, they came to visit. Um, but by the time Albuquerque, they couldn't, that was competitive show season and, and it was her senior year. So there was so much going on. Oh, that's well, great. I'm going to, can I go back to, we have so many questions and we have them in order of, and you tell us when you need to wrap up, but we've got. <laughs> I love it. I love that you're available and free. This is so cool. This is a Kentucky. My husband's from Kentucky too. And, and oh, things where? just roll. Lexington. His dad was a professor there. So he spent from zero to 17 years old there. And then moved. Where did he go? To, did he go to school away? Obviously, at seventeen. Yeah. Then he came here, finished high school in Del Mar, and then went on to University uh, UC Riverside. So mm -hmm. yeah, right around here. But 
but his heart's still in Kentucky. And we have yet to go back. So, but he's got that same mellow, just like roll with it. It's all totally. Good. <laughs> you guys are all, you're just grounded. I love it. Yeah. 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 But then we elect Mitch McConnell and, uh, and Let's Rand Paul. Amy McGrath. Out. Yeah. Get Amy McGrath in there. Everybody who's listening, please help campaign for that. Ooh. Donate to her fund. We got to get Mitch out of there. Yeah. I have. Yay. <laughs> Very good. All right, so let's hear some of these questions. We have some fans, and we also had some other podcast pals that wrote in and wanted to know certain questions. So I, I did them in order of Scream, something about Mary, a couple general questions, and then Deadwood. So the first one on Scream is, what was it like being on one of the biggest blockbuster films so young? You kind of answered that, though, I would say. Do you have any? Yeah, and it was well, nobody knew it was going to be a blockbuster film. You know, that was the thing with Scream and Mary, both were studio or studio adjacent films. So they had enough money that we didn't have to cut every corner, but we didn't have a huge budget either, which meant there wasn't a lot of studio oversight. Yeah. Um, because when the, the bigger the budget gets, the tighter the reins get. So both of those films were just, they weren't expected to do anything. Yeah. And both of them came out of nowhere and were huge. So with Scream, again, I had no clue. It wasn't until yeah. I saw it all cut together that I realized, like, oh, shit. This is something. <laughs> the energy was really... I talked to Wes that day in the video store and, and had a chance to... And it was just a real mellow vibe, and he was really mellow, and he talked about... Right. He was joking mm -hmm. around about Johnny Depp. He goes, I said, so how's it going? He goes, well, it would be going a lot better if Johnny Depp called me back. I did launch his career... And he was just like chatting with everybody. It felt like a, just a fun day out at camp yeah. or something. Well, that we didn't find out till toward the end. The first thing he, he cut was, um, and ironically, just yesterday sitting in here, I did a, a thing for Drew Barrymore's show. She's got a new talk show. That's right. So they're do, she's doing a screen thing. So I did a Zoom with them that's going to be used as part of that. So I was just thinking about all this screen stuff. Wow. But that opening segment with her was the first thing he shot. He almost got fired. Like the Bob Weinstein, Harvey's brother, that was his, you know, Dimension was his label. And this was the first film. And they're looking at the dailies and oh, I don't see a film here. I don't see a film. So Wes convinced them, let me, let me cut this together. It's there. Trust me. So for that first two weeks, he was shooting all night and then editing all day. Um, he had his editors there. So he's working with them to get that opening segment cut, the Casey Becker segment. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of the all-time classic horror scenes of all time. And, it's amazing. And, yeah, and then he sent in the rough cut of that, and that's when Weinstein goes, oh, what do I know about horror? I know nothing about making horror. This is great. Good. So, yeah, he almost got fired. He almost wow. got fired for shooting what was, you know, the classic scene. So, um, yeah, was, but he was, but he was still just, he was like your favorite college professor. Yeah. That was his demeanor. Yep. And, you know, talk to him. Yeah. Super mellow. That was another question from someone was, what was your favorite kill in that movie? Yours. yours. <laughs> yeah. This was from Kelly at Boobies and Newbies. Just giving her a shout out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, in that film. Well, because I did it was mine. Of course. Um, <laughs> but, uh. Oh, 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 gosh. What was what, I'm trying to think of the character name. Um, in the garage door. 
Oh, Was it's she... yeah, Rose McGowan scene. I can't remember her character Rose, name either. Her character name. Not Casey. Casey Becker was 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 Drew. Prescott was Nev. Gail Weathers. Well, we know who we're talking about. That <laughs> yeah. About that. that was an, a wickedly inventive way to, uh, <laughs> to off someone in a slasher film. Love it. Yes. That was great. Pretty quintessential. Yeah. Okay, so next we're going to move on to something about Mary. Um, okay, the classic question you've been asked a million times. Did Warren find his baseball from Brett Bederson? It was underneath the couch. We actually did a shot that the camera was underneath the couch with the ball in the foreground. Um, we actually set up and shot that. And they decided, oh, it's better to leave it a mystery. <gasps> oh, there you go. Couch, yeah. So all these years later, people are still asking that question. That's um, great. Answered here. You heard it here first. <laughs> and then, so you talked about the mentally challenged character and that you pulled from other characters like Rain Man and mm-hmm. and who did you bring to it the most? I, I, I just, you know, I used to do stuff like that just to keep myself amused. Like I would put some kind of little inside joke in um in in a movie in one of my performances like in the meatloaf movie i did a movie about meatloaf for vh1 and there's a scene where he got signed when he sang for the columbia record executives and i had them make name tags that said bobby fleckman um um, all from spinal tap i love it spinal tap (laughs) the record executive name so there's i just did a little crap like that just so it would amuse me as i watched the movie that's the only one in something about Mary, because I had a plethora of, you know, I had of mice and men. I had Rain Man. Gilbert Grape. Um, Gilbert Grape. I had, um, well, the one that Bobby, and I didn't tell anybody that I was doing this. I just did it. Yeah. And um, I had, the only joke that got nullified was I had props after I beat up Ben and I'm, I'm in the chair. Hey, I almost got fired from that movie. Well, well I'll finish that story. It was this scene where I'm sitting in the chair and she brings, I said, well, any, cause he's so big, he eats a lot. So bring me food. I said, can you bring me biscuits with mustard on them? Just bring me biscuits of sling blade. Cause sling blade <laughs> was only a year old at that point. Well, Bobby walks over, Bobby fairly goes, what's, what's with the biscuits with mustard? I'm like, oh, it's just a little inside joke. And he goes, yeah, but that's kind of a Zucker brothers joke. Not a oh fairly joke. He caught it. Qualified so, <laughs> my biscuits with mustard. That's um, hilarious. But back to, um, that was one of the early things that we shot. The studio had wanted for something about Mary. They wanted a name in that role. Now, again, on the page, there wasn't a lot to it. Um, but they were still, they, they were, they had their name, their list of known names and the Fairleys were adamant. They said the audience has to believe this character. They have to believe his condition. If it's a known actor playing this role, no matter how good they might be, the audience is going to know this is an actor pretending and the humor won't work. So they won their argument. I was the guy. Um, and then as we were shooting, I found this out afterwards. And there's a studio exec who's made his entire reputation on he oversaw that film. And that's the son of a bitch that wanted to fire me. Um, he saw the dailies like it's uncomfortable. It's too real. It's too, it's, it's like painful to watch. It's uncomfortable. Well, well that's kind of the point in certain scenes. Otherwise it's a parody. Because, yeah. It was that scene where the fighting, where I'm on the chair, where he's so upset. Um, and that was the one that triggered them. 
Um, so yeah, but the Fairleys, I, you know, I didn't get fired, Yeah. but, uh, but yeah. So you were the best part of that guy, movie. <laughs> I know. When, you when were... I saw that guy in the trades and I'd see his name climbing the ranks and everything it listed, something about Mary for Fox. Yeah. 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 How was working with Chris Elliott, by the way, who I just love? I didn't really, I didn't have anything with him. Oh, so I, don't, yeah. I never even, I never even met him. We never overlapped. That's so interesting how that happens. He was probably only brought in for a couple of days or, mm-hmm. or separate weeks. Yeah. You would yep. think everybody would meet each other, but often they don't. Well, yeah. Unless you're on a film, you know, if you're there for the whole schedule um, and most people, even when they do, if they have the money, hell, they're flying themselves or they, yeah. it's already negotiated. Most people don't stay on location for the yeah. entire how were the Fairley brothers? Were they pretty open to improv, or did they want you to stick to their writing? No, they, they were open. He was masturbating! Was a complete improv. Oh, really? Yeah. Next no! to Franks and Beans. Franks and, Beans um, and uh, have you seen my baseball? That's the third most famous line. And that was the one. In the, it was in the scene where he zipped himself up in his, in his pants. <laughs> of course. And the ambulance is bringing him out, and I'm following him. And I'm I'm yelling. He was masturbating, <laughs> and that was an improv. And oh my god! For the longest time, I would not do it. I wouldn't do the voice at all because mm-hmm. people would want me as a party trick, oh. and and it it felt uncomfortable to me. Of uh, you know, again, it's a broad comedy, and in in today's woke world, yeah. would that even get made? But, you know, I've had comments made about me playing that role. Um, that's in recent years. But I, I never wanted to feel like I was making fun of, of Warrentation. Yeah, right. You know, the real Warren. Yeah. And I didn't want that to become a party trick. And, and I was offered, there was one in particular, the movie ended up bombing, but it was to playing this mentally handicapped guy in a comedy. And I wouldn't do it. I no, I'm not interested. Because um, I didn't want to repeat myself. I didn't want to get... St- stuck in doing that and i didn't want it to become a party trick either um so you know oh god 10 years or so ago i i sort of loosened up a little bit on that but i um there's a fine line with that i signed up i i I avoided it at first but i have so many friends that are doing it about three or four months ago i got on cameo because what the fuck else am i doing with my time But that's the one thing I, I will not do it as a character. I still have the earmuffs. They're right over there. Oh, I love it. The earmuffs yeah. and do I'll do Franks and Beans or something like yeah. that. But um, yeah. but no, it's just no it's parody. Just, that's good. And that yeah. was the other thing we were talking about is how you have not been typecast at all. Yeah. Well, part of that is I mean the only power that you have as an actor, and and everybody everyone has it. The only power you have is to say no. You know, and and so many people get so desperate that they will do absolutely anything to anything to get their toe in the door. Um, And I I just, you know, I it's a double sided sword. And I naively thought when I started this, you know, 30 years ago, I thought, well, you do special work. If it does well, then special things come your way. That's the way it works. And then the first time I got billing was do the goodness of Wes Craven, you know, oh, that's nice. And as I said, I'm, I'm not under any illusions. It didn't take Olivier to do what I did in Scream. A lot of people could do what I did in Scream. Um, 
not a lot of people could do what I did in something about Mary, mm-hmm. you know? So when Mary hits and I'm like, all right, baby, here we go. Buckle in. And then it was crickets. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, taught me, taught me a lesson. Um, what is the lesson? Because it's just, that happens a lot to people. And what do you, what did you learn from that? Is it to, is it humility and faith? You don't get anything that's not negotiated for you. Don't expect, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts that you're going to get anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the importance of your representation, the importance of your billing, the importance of all of that stuff um, that I used to didn't care about. I mean, yeah, I cared. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to see your face in a magazine or something like that, although magazines are a dying thing now. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I never could afford, like, hell, I only made 16 grand to do that movie. They paid me scale plus 10. So I couldn't have afforded, um, a, you know, a, at that point, 20 years ago, a publicist was two grand a month. So if I'd have had my own publicist, it would have taken every dime that I made yeah. to pay a publicist. Yeah. Um, so, but it wasn't that important to me. I've never had a publicist. I had for three months, David Milch hired somebody on this thing for Deadwood that, over, that I worked with. Um, but I've never hired a publicist. Wow. Um, it, it, so as I'm saying, the double-edged sword, the more famous you are, the more known you are, the easier it is to get work. The easy, easier it is to get things funded. You know, I have things that I want to make. I have, I did make a movie that I produced and I wrote. We that, watched it, uh, Bloodworth. Yeah, it was yeah. great. It was great. Um, it was awesome. You know, that, that just took so much out of me. Um, but we got to make the movie that we wanted to make and I'm proud of it. Yeah. But the more better known you are, the easier it is because money comes your way. Now, the flip side of that is the more you are known as a personality, the more difficult it is to disappear into the roles that you play. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I can think of very few actors, you know, Phil Hoffman being the prime example. That guy was, the, he was a character actor. This guy who completely, you know, changed um, who he was in Did these characters. Did you meet him that, in The Master? Uh, no. No, I was only on Master for a couple of days, and I never crossed paths with Phil. In Early in my career, there was a film that was called Joey Coyle that starred John Cusack, and Cusack was with that agency that I was with in Chicago. It's where he started. He was still with them. And there was a supporting role uh, the movie ended up getting released called Money for Nothing. It's 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 mm. not that great a film, but it was a supporting role. It was pretty significant, and they put me on tape for it in Chicago, and I was told they're going to fly you out. <clears throat> they want to meet you, so I'm I'm you know I've only been doing that for a couple of years. I'm like they're going to fly me to Los Angeles, like they're going to pay for it. Yeah, they want to they you know, want you to meet with the. So I'm all so excited. And then two days later, they found this guy in New York that they love. They're going to cast him. Um, sorry. And it was Phil. Wow. And that was the first time when I saw the movie. And then I started seeing him in other things. Like I recognized who it was. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the early points in my career that, you know, um, you know, him and Farley, yeah. you know, Second City. I thought I had, that was my dream. Wow. And then Farley was down to me and Farley and then Chris did it. And ironically, Chris was on the, the short list at Fox to play Warren in something about Mary. You're kidding. And, no. And he passed away while we were doing it. Oh my I remember gosh. I got, I got the news that night in my hotel room in, in Miami. 
Yeah. Wow. Now, was that your first uh, true love was comedy or do you have one genre that you like better than the other? Well, I mean, that was, um, 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 I, I know I'm not the Lone Ranger in this, but I come from a dysfunctional family and, and the men in the family, especially my mother's side, the ones I felt more kin to, were very comfortable in beating the shit out of each other and being angry. Um, <clears throat> and comedy was a great mask, you know, telling a joke. And, and I was the, the insecure fat kid, you know, growing up. Um, and that was my, that was my way. I was the fat, funny guy. Um, so it was always a mask and that we didn't even have a theater department. We had in high school, we had a very successful high school speech and debate team, which is how I met my wife. Cause she was on it. Oh, cute. Uh, That's awesome. No, we, we had this incredible teacher, Larry England, who, who said, yeah, look, you're rural farm kids and that there's nothing wrong with doing that. However, there's nothing that's impossible in life if you're willing to work for it. And so that was his philosophy. We were state champions three of our four years uh, in speech and debate. Certainly not in football because we sucked in football. I played <laughs> that too. Um, but it was, I, I, I was the first of my family to go to college. And I went to Murray State, which is the local school. It's a school of like 10, 12,000 students. So it's a big college. But it was there, you know, in the county where I grew up. Um, I didn't, I had no clue what I was going to do. And, and I thought, I can't. I took an acting class on a whim and then it was like a fish to water. So early on, it was, it was all comedy. I'm going to talk about when I was young, when I was mm -hmm. a teenager. And then I started doing drama in school and it was, the stage was a safe place because that wasn't me. That's not me. That's a character that I'm playing. Yeah. That's, you know, so it, I wasn't aware of the mask. Um, but no, if it's genuine, if you're finding truth, it absolutely is you. You know, Warren is me as, as much as Dan Doherty from Deadwood is me. Yeah. Um, so it took me several years to, to really recognize it um, of, of where, where that well was and how deep it ran. Um, so, yeah, comedy was my first thing. And I always think I, I had a sense of timing. Um, you know, I was blessed with that skill. But, but it was the, the drama part that really changed my life, oh. that changed me fundamentally yeah. yeah i want to circle back to that too when we ask about your movie bloodworth because a lot of the characters i was wondering if there was some uh, relation to your f own family with that yep. but i want to go to deadwood before we, we had a lot of questions about deadwood obviously it is a brilliant show you were amazing in it and there, rabid fans. There's like, Oh my gosh, so many know. fans that were asking such detailed questions. And it's one of those series that people have watched two over and, and over. three, like The Sopranos. I mean, it's got that sort of depth and following. Yeah. And you, I mean, I still, because I worked on the writing staff seasons two and three, so I was there for 99% of everything that's in it. I was there at its creation. And I was there when most of it was shot, even if I wasn't in the scene. But I can still watch it again and still pick up things still pick up some nuance that I'd missed before. Wow. It's, it's that good. And it holds up all these years later. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, Deadwood, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Ask away. And I, I'm here with my, my Dan Doherty pillow from the movie. Oh so. my God. That's amazing. Wait, was that the real guy? That's him? No, yeah. that's me. Oh, that's from you. The movie. Oh my God. HBO, Look at that. We had, a, we had a big, huge party 
Oh. And they, they printed up all these character throw pillows in the lounge. Why does and it, I absconded with two of them. It doesn't look like you. I know. Maybe, it's maybe the nose has got a wrinkle in it or yeah, something. Yeah, you've, <laughs> you've aged in that film. Yes. <laughs> that is so... How was the... Okay, so first the series and then we'll see about the movie, but... What was your favorite part of the film? Was it your big famous fight scene in that with Captain? Um, I mean, that's one of them. There, there are so many highlights in that whole thing. Yeah. Um, that's some. That was one of them. Yes, and that there again. I to try to pinpoint just one is nearly impossible because yeah. things would happen. Just this spark. We all knew that we had something unique. We knew we had something no one had ever really seen before. We had an enormously talented group of people and we believed in the story that we were telling and we completely gave over to it and you couldn't. And now, now it, it was not all hugs and butterfly kisses. There were days that people were at each other's throats yeah. and, and, you know, David could be a prickly pair, David Milch. Oh, I've heard. Um, the genius behind it all. Yeah. Um, but we were all committed to it with 100% of our souls. So I couldn't wait to get to work because you never knew what the hell was going to happen. And sometimes just the smallest little thing, smallest little seed would just explode and bloom into something that you weren't, weren't expecting. Um, and, and now that was when you didn't, you followed the punctuation. It was so precise in its language. You know, David wrote in meter. Um, so you had to follow every every syllable as it was written you mean like, um, like iambic pentameter meter like the song or something wow. it is oh wow it's not pentameter yeah that's amazing um, how did you did, were you guys trained on how to do that or did most people know pretty much everybody on the show with the exception of tim tim's background was as an artist fine art as a painter um but pretty much everybody else had been um had had formal theater training and Shakespeare and classical stuff. So um, being comfortable with, you know, the words falling trippingly off the tongue um, certainly, certainly helped. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, it was, um, again, it's just a long litany of, of incredible moments of moments that would happen. And then afterwards you would just, you know, yeah. And psychologically, I remember one moment it's, it's at the end of season one, where it's juxtaposed into the sheer brilliance of David Milch. When we murder the captain, or we murder the, the preacher, yes, a, a, a mercy killing, and then we murder Claggett up in Al's office. So it's two murders. Mm -hmm. and, and remember, they're cutting back and forth as the preacher, it's cutting back and forth to Doc, who's had this prayer to God. Yes. You know? Uh, did you need to see them suffer? Did you need? So all this building up to this crescendo. And I can remember being in, in Al's office where it comes in before we kill Claggett. And there's a scene where I'm sitting behind Al's desk and Claggett's at right b behind us across the desk from me. And then Adams and uh, Hawkeye are standing there behind him. You think they're his henchmen before they come over and start working for us. And Al's in the scene. And there was just this primal, I, I mean, I, I know it's all pretend, it's all, all acting. There was a primal malevolence in that room that you really felt like, 
we could kill this motherfucker. <laughs> you know? and, and, and it wasn't until it was over that I really felt this, oh my God, you know, wow. it felt for me. And I wasn't the only one. You could feel it in the fucking room. Like the devil was with us. Yeah. Ooh. I was just going to say like a spirit came in the room evil. With you or something. Evil, uh. really evil. Um, and again, I know it's pretend we're actors, but, but it was, um, so that, that is a, a high water mark. Not necessarily a feeling good, yeah. Because you know, <laughs> you think you want to go bathe in holy water once you've done that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would. Uh, did did it ever psychologically mess with you? Because you're doing all those killings. Did you um, get to a point where you started questioning yourself or have to do a little no, method acting on the side? No. Yeah. Um, and I think that was part of what made the stage safe for me. Um, I'm very much in touch with my own darkness my own dark side and and learning that was the only way i learned to beat depression and anxiety you know is is to to and that goes back to wes craven um and it goes back to fucking line and screen movies don't make monsters they make monsters more creative or killers or whatever you know and that was wes's whole thing of of movies and art as a catharsis for the darkness that's within you. I just rewatched, and I hadn't seen it in years. I just rewatched The Last House on the Left. Mm. Oh my God, what a brutal, twisted movie. I haven't seen And that. how somebody that was that kind and sweet natured as, as Wes was, like, how did that man even conceive of something that depraved? And um, he, that was a remake too. Didn't he write the original the, what, in the 70s and then redid? He wrote. He wrote and directed the original in 1972. Yeah. And it was, I think he oversaw, he just got paid. I don't know sure how actively involved he was in the remake. Okay. Uh, in which Derek Garrett, Garrett Dillahunt from Deadwood played Krug in, in the remake. But I saw the original one. Um, anyway, but that was Wes's thing. And, and, and I agreed with it because I loved as a kid, I loved dark, dark, well, Motorhead. I loved dark, <laughs> heavy music, you know? And, and I love dark, scary stories. Um, and that's, I think that's the way we deal with our fears. And in going to see a scary movie, especially if one of the appeal is to teenagers, because you're just coming to terms with your own mor- mortality. You're just, you know, puberty brings you to the point of, oh, I'm going to die <laughs> well, someday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, safely watching these stories at a distance allows us to better deal with, with our own fears. Yeah. Um, and you know, I somewhere down the line, I, I became comfortable with, with the the um, my own ugliness, <laughs> that, <laughs> the dark know. side. Well, this kind yeah. of go- it plays into the podcast community too, because there's so many true crime podcasts and yeah. shows. But I did wonder why is it so saturated, and that does make sense, you know. And I tend mm-hmm. to go the other way. I like the light and the happy and the comedy and. I've got the dark. Well, and then I popped out three kids, and two of my kids really like creepy dolls and the scary things, and they're going down that route. And so as a mom, I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. But maybe it's healthy to let them explore that. And It is, yeah. because, it's again, it's a safe way to confront your own primal fears. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it certainly was that for me. Now, you know, hell, I was going to a, a hellfire and brimstone church that told me kiss would send me to hell, you know? Um, and, um, so again, the stage was a place for me to come to terms with a lot of this stuff, 
stuff that had been ladled upon me in, in where and how I grew up. Um, so, so yeah, the, the only way I, 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 God, it's the only way I found happiness in my life was to be able to, uh, acknowledge the darkness yeah. within myself. And th that way the darkness doesn't have power over you. That's that, that's, that is Freddy Krueger. You know, when you confront your fears, when you're, when you confront it face to face, it no longer has power over. Yeah, true. I always felt like acting in general, you have to put yourself, and I only did a little bit of it and then I went behind the scenes, but it was, it feels like you have to face your fear just stepping out in front of people and being vulnerable. And then I think doing... every art is that. Yeah. Every art. Um, as an actor, you know, your body is your instrument. Um, so you, you don't have that remove of, of um, you know, when you paint something on a canvas and then you put the canvas out there, well, the canvas is what's showing the reflection. It's not you. Yeah. You know, when you're doing live theater, um, it's just you in the audience. And there is an immense vulnerability to that. Um, but I think, you know, the only true art comes from vulnerability, no matter how it expresses itself, whether it's on a canvas or whether it's on an instrument. So I think it all comes from the same place. But being able, like you're talking about playing Dan Doherty, being able to also control it, like letting it come out and getting really mm -hmm. into it. And, but then also there's Earl Brown who's able to not go that far that you can. I mean, some people would go too far with their acting where they hurt there, themselves or others. There have been um, there have been a few performances, a few films that really kind of got me um, that affected me once you know i was off camera that took me a while to to shed um deadwood was so i don't know just the whole environment um i was able to to take it off and put it on you know within in that show but uh, fuck i worked on the damn thing again seven days a week i was always trying to dream up some story or something and um and then you know going and working with dave so it, it kind of was my immersive life. Wow. Um, How did you write that freaking, it's so many storylines. How did you take it on and figure it the out? Process, the process for me, it all started with, in the pilot, I improvised the line, which is a huge fucking no-no with David Milch. It's in the pilot when, when Bullock and Star pull up on the wagon, and I say, $5 a week, payable to Mr. Swearingen, Jim. And he, and he, Bullock says, Where, where's that? And I'm just supposed to say, you'll find it and turn and walk away. And in one take, I go, you'll find it. Everybody does. And it cut. Milch comes walking over to me and he goes, uh, well, I uh, guess I'm going to have to call WGA. I said, what? He goes, get an adjudication over who wrote this fucking thing, me or you. What the fuck did you say? And I'm thinking, uh-oh. Um, um, You'll, you'll find it. Everybody does. And he kind of ponders. He says, uh, script. He brings the script supervisor over. He goes, tell her what you said. Write this down. Never quote me on it because I'll deny it. But that, uh, that turn of phrase works. That, that works. And he walks off. So way later in the season, he comes up to me. And, and I'd realized early, if something wasn't quite fallingly, trippingly off the tongue, he would be open to, um, you know, discussions if, 
sometimes he was in a dark place and you just avoided him. But you could go to Dave and go, hey, how about if we, and he would listen and sometimes make adjustments, sometimes not. Um, but I don't know what particular thing I had said or done was the impetus for this. But he come up to me one day and he goes, uh, do you write? I said, yeah. He said, actually, uh, I have something I want you to read. Come with me to the trailer. So he takes me and he, ha he had done a five-hour lecture at Yale because he used to be the chair of the English department at Yale. But he had done a long lecture about his theory of writing. And it was transcribed exactly the way he speaks with all the, the vocalized pauses and the ahs and the ums. And it was about that thick. And he gave it to me and I read it here in this room. Um, so I go to work. I read it over the weekend. I go back to work. And he goes, did you read that thing I gave you? I said, yeah. You read it? I said, yeah, I fucking read it. I'm, yes. And he said, all right, well, it's my turn. I want to see something you've done. So I gave him a short story first. The next day, he comes up to me. He's got it. And he read it. He said, that, uh, that's got promise. You've written a script. And I had just written the first draft of what became Bloodworth. It's an adaptation of a book, Provinces of Night. And I had just dissected the book and, and put it in, in three-act form and whatnot. And I did kind of want his feedback on it. And I said, yeah, just it's a first draft of this adaptation. But, yeah, he goes, let me see it. So I give it to him. About three or four days later, he comes back with my script, hands it to me, and he goes, it's obvious you can write. Uh, next season, I want you to come to the writer's trailer. I want you to join us. I just got chills for you. Well, well I was – honestly, I was intimidated, like – David, David's a genius. I've never met anybody like him. Um, I've met a few people that have the level of intellect that he does, but it's almost invariably that there's this, this disconnect, emotional disconnect, you know, like an Asperger's or something, because that part of their brain is so dominant, the intellect is, that the emotional, and Dave's emotional intellect is as gargantuan as his intellect. Um, David has this innate ability to, to, to just understand a person like he can see through you and he sees all the cracks, you know, and Dave being Dave, he wants to fix those cracks in your soul. Um, so now, and, and I've said this before, don't, don't fall into the illusion of him as some sort of uh, sandals and bead wearing guru. Cause Dave was, you know, he was a heroin addict for many years. Um, an alcoholic, um, who lived life, uh, he had a, he had a dangerous streak in him a mile wide and, um, and a lot of people got burned by it. So David was a very, very complicated man. And it wasn't until it was Steve Earle, the singer songwriter who, um, we all had breakfast and I knew those two guys are so much alike that they would either repel each other or bond because they were both heroin addicts for years, both genius minds. You know, Steve is a high school dropout, and David has the finest education anyone could ever get. But within five minutes, they're sharing junkie stories, you know, and they hit it off. And um, it was Steve. We were in my pickup truck leaving that breakfast, and he goes, didn't you say he gave you a chance to write? I said, yeah. He goes, you going to do it? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm I was hemming and hawing. And he goes, well, if you don't, you're a fucking idiot because that's a writer's writer, man. You don't meet people like that very often in this world. I met Towns Van Zant when I was 17 years old, and I knew that man can teach me. That man can teach you if you get off your goddamn horse and do it. So that was the prodding that I needed. Wow, <laughs> that was enough. Uh, 
to go and, and walk in the door hat in hand and go, all right, I'm here. Um, so the process, that's a very long answer to tell you what the process was. You would come up with story ideas, either from history or from your imagination and go to David and go, Hey Dave, I got this idea, lay it out. All right. What else do you have? Well, that, that has promise. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go out and, uh, write an arc on that. See where that story could go and, uh, and write three scenes. Let's see scene wise dramatically how it would. So you'd go away and you'd do that and you'd give it back to Dave. And my favorite, I remember this very well, standing right outside the main sound stage. I had three things that I'd written, each stapled together and printed here. I handed them to him, and the first one picks it up. That's absolute shit. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And then he's looking at the second, he goes, this has promise. This has got promise. So that, that was Dave. You know, oh, um, but you kept going. You didn't take that as yeah. an insult. You just kept working with him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like I said, I felt like I got paid to sit at the feet of Aristotle, you know, and, and he and Wes Craven have been like two of my life's great teachers. And the two that I've met in, in my career in show business, just these, this very bright men um, that are just, spiritually in tune with some higher frequency. Um, so yeah, I've been, those have been my, my two greatest. I, I was just, you know, thinking about Wes recently, I wrote something that was heavily influenced by, by him. And then Dave, I had lunch with Dave right before COVID hit. He's, he, he has Alzheimer's yeah. and he's living in an assisted uh, facility. And I went to have lunch with him and he said to me, we sat down at the table. There's a restaurant in the, it's, it's, it's for retired people and then the top floor people with cognizant decline. Uh, and so he was having a good day when I was there. But we sit down in the restaurant and, you know, people in, in the, the later stages of life. And Dave leans into me and he says, I have to tell you, Earl, the indignities of in decrepitude are boundless. <laughs> you know? He managed to pull that out. Wow. Yeah. The indignities of decrepitude are boundless. So anyway, that that's, um, yeah. I would not take anything for those four years spent, or three seasons, but four years total that we were creating that story. So and why did they cancel it? I had read. Okay, so there we go. The first half of our interview with W. Earl Brown. That is so cool. We love this guy. He's just great. We learned a lot about something about Mary Scream and a little bit of Deadwood, which is a teaser to come on over to part two. You're going to hear more about Deadwood, David Milch, what it was like working behind the scenes, getting into character. And we're going to hear a lot more about his country music and his his film Bloodworth. Yeah, his film Bloodworth. um, And a lot of music talk about that because the people that he was able to pull in uh, were Chris Christopherson. He talked about the soundtrack and and that whole scene. Plus, like Val Kilmer was in the movie. Yeah. So we hear about that a bit, as well as his new project, Dad Band, which is hilarious and great. You guys should go find that on YouTube right now, real quick. Go look look up Dad Band. While you're on YouTube, you can look up Mouse and Weens as well, and all of our social media at Mouse and Weens. 
We would love you guys to find us over on Patreon too, patreon.com slash Weens. Only $5 a month. You can show us your support. That really keeps us motivated to keep on trucking and getting uh, good stuff going for you guys here. Keep on keeping on. Equipment and all the all the costs of this. This does cost. So, All right. We love you. And we appreciate you listening. Take care and we'll see you on part two. Bye-bye. Bye. I've been getting my feet wet, so why am I stuck here again? Well, I was 17 when you came a calling. And when you smiled, you told a million tales. But I'm a big girl now, and I ought to know better. So why am I stuck here again?